Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your dormant must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at this passage and as I preach it, that you would bless us. That every one of the thoughts and meditations of our heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated, please. So we've, we've gone over the first six verses in the last couple of weeks, and so today we focus on the last verse of what I just read. So we focus on verse 7, and those commands, uh, and the, it shifts toward husbands, right? Now, it used to be that men opened doors for women, Right? Sometimes it still happens, but it's, it's definitely uh, a risk-taking adventure if you're a man. Right? But it used to be that men opened doors for women, and it used to be that women appreciated men opening doors for them. Right? This activity was a liturgy. It was a liturgy that acknowledged and affirmed God's creation of male and female and God's creation of of the female as, as our passage says, the weaker vessel, right? Has it, um, <clears throat> has it confused you why women hate this so much today? Why women hate having doors open to them? They hate it because, because it, like I said, it's a liturgy and praise to God's creation of male and female, And so those who reject God reject this, and those who reject this reject God. But we'll come back to that a little later. So we've been in this passage for a few weeks, and and we'll finish it up this week, hopefully. And we turn from the Apostle Paul's words to women who are exhorted to pursue the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God, to husbands. Just as verse 1 of chapter 3 started with the phrase, in the same way, which connected it back to the household servants and masters, verse 7 starts with, you husbands, in the same way. 
Right? What is the apostle pointing back to with those words in the same way? Well, I think he's drawing in the whole idea of inferiors and superiors, right? And telling us that because the husband has authority, that is no reason for him to neglect his duty, his calling to be committed to the welfare of his wife. Servants and wives have duties by virtue of their lack of authority, while husbands in homes have obligations and duties based upon um, based upon their God-given authority, right? Authority comes with obligations, and those obligations are often very heavy, very difficult. Yes, submission and deferring to authority seem to be almost impossible. Very difficult work, right? But bearing authority has its troubles too, right? Bearing authority seems to be Um, as hard, right? With authority comes responsibility. With authority, there is no one else to blame, right? In submission, you can blame somebody else, but in authority, you are the one who's at fault. So, So that's our start. Now, what exactly does the Holy Spirit command of husbands here? The passage goes on to teach this. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. First thing that bears thinking about is the command husbands receive to live with their wives. Live with your wives, right? They are not, as, as one commentator put it, to live with their careers or to live with their buddies, but are to live for and with their wives, Right? Too many men in our day live out of their homes and away from their wives, and the lack of depth in their marriage is, you know, reveals this. Men are called to cultivate and keep the garden as it's put in Genesis, and they must remember that a crucial part of that garden is their household. Their household. Men should be committed to the strength, the glory, and the fruitfulness of their household. That means living for and living with their wives. There should be no one closer to a husband than his wife. No one else that close. Not not, not even and not especially children. Okay? Okay? Husbands and wives need to protect, often husbands need to protect their wives from the tyranny of the relationship of their children. Okay. Next, husbands, as they lead their wives and hold the office of husband, have to understand the makeup of who it is they are called to lead. They are to live with them in knowledge, in an understanding way. In other words, husbands can't just duck and weave around that age-old conundrum and say, I'm never going to understand women. We can't, we can't duck and weave the question, right? Scripture doesn't allow us to do that because it defines womanhood and defines femininity for us, however contrary those definitions are to our culture's definitions of them, right? And the first focus of this passage is to point out, as we've talked about before, the weakness of the woman, the weakness of the woman. 
passage says, live with your wives, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman. Now I touched upon this weakness and what it means in the previous two sermons, but, but we need to go over that again. Some say, like, like John MacArthur, for instance, that this is simply a matter of physical weakness. It's just physical. Um, it's biological. Women are generally smaller, less muscled, not capable of, of running as fast or lifting as much weight. And we see that kind of weakness most clearly um, in the difference between men's and women's sports, right? Um, sprint times. Uh, shot put uh, distance, and uh, cycling times, etc., etc. That's why there's women's sports and men's sports. That's why in high school we divide between the men and the women. MacArthur goes on, he writes, women are by God's design physically weaker and therefore in need of protection, provision, and strength. Notice he limits the weakness of the woman to physical weakness. And... Would that we could do that. We would all be happy and comfortable for the rest of the sermon. <laughs> Nesbitt defines the weakness in two, two ways. He, first, he ties the weakness of the woman back to the curses of Genesis 3, in particular to the pain and labor of childbirth and child rearing, which I find interesting that it's tied back to um, the weakness that is comes by way of the curse. And secondly, he says that a weakness is also moral, but I can't understand his reasoning, which makes it seem he's talking about physical weakness here. Um, Matthew Henry and John Calvin, my two usual go-to commentators, and many others don't even attempt to define, at least in their commentaries, don't attempt to define what the weakness of the woman is. Um, William Harrell says that women are not as physically strong and emotionally tough as men. Um, John Piper says that this passage simply teaches that the woman has a weaker vessel, a weaker body. He gives the stat that 3% of construction workers are women as proof. They, the, the Y chromosome gives men a genetic advantage, he says. Stephen Clark summarizes the two main views of this passage and then doesn't take a stand on either one of them. He writes, there are two common interpretations given the wife's weakness. One view would understand weakness in reference to the fact that Eve was deceived. Weakness would then mean that the woman's susceptibility to deception, perhaps especially spiritual deception. The second interpretation understands weakness is simply a reference to women's physical weakness in comparison to men. Whichever interpretation is correct, he says, whichever is correct, the passage refers to a tendency for men not to respect women and therefore urges the husband to take care to show that he respects and values his wife. Good application, but he doesn't go through um, the definition. At the very least, Clark acknowledges that there's a connection between 1 Peter 7 and 1 Peter 2.14, which we talked about a, uh, a week ago or two weeks ago. 
At the end of all of that, so going through the, the different commentators, I'm certainly willing to grant the physical component of the weakness of women. It's, you have to be delusional to deny the general physical weakness of the woman to the man, right? And there's a lot of delusion going on today, right? The transgender movement is a, is a, is a delusional movement to say that men and women are interchangeable bodily, right? It's obvious, you know, but, but nonetheless, this component of physical weakness is part of this. It's obvious, explains why we have an NBA and a WNBA, the physical weakness of the woman is indeed why many men, listen, the physical weakness of the woman is why many men come to despise women through dominating them, right? A husband who despises the relative physical weakness of his wife and therefore rather than honoring her because of her weakness takes advantage of it is that kind of man is a scoundrel, right? He's the worst kind of man that would prey upon the physical weakness of a woman. It is worth saying here that this is not just a matter of physical abuse and physical harm and a husband beating his wife physically. There are other ways that a man refuses to honor his wife because of her physical weakness. He can insist that his wife, because that his wife work while she's pregnant and caring for him and his children all along the way. He can put so much burden on his wife's shoulders that she's continually exhausted, right? Perhaps he's backed himself into a corner and he's strapped himself and his wife and his family with so much debt that he can't afford for his wife not to work. Well, that may be true, but it is going to lead to the physically weaker vessel's exhaustion. Her relative physical exhaustion will be evident then in the breaking down of her body, which is meant to bear the burden of childbearing, but is not meant to bear the physical beating that a man's body can endure and work. So men, consider whether or not you are dishonoring your wife by treating her as, a stronger, as stronger physically than she is. Is your wife exhausted? Right? Is your wife running from this to that, unable to even keep up with her ex-utero children? Right? And now she's pregnant and she's throwing up and, 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 and working full-time? In a situation like this, if you are in it, you may need to take drastic measures in order to show honor to your wife, right? Simply simplify, downsize, take a second job yourself, right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that you, you aren't laying burdens on her that her sex can't bear, that her femininity can't bear. And so the physical dishonoring of wives is a terrible thing, and it's something that men must be sensitive to and must be willing to amend. But what if the weakness extends to what I mentioned a few weeks ago? That there is, as Neuer argued, and he is one of the few I've seen that's even willing to define the weakness in question, that there is a greater susceptibility of women to temptation. 
Right? Taking 1 Timothy 2.14 together with Genesis 3.6, he made the argument. Why is Genesis 3.6 important? Well, because it shows the intense temptation of the woman even before the fall of mankind. Okay? It shows that there was something vulnerable in the woman by nature, by her constitution, which made her susceptible to temptation. And then after Satan puts the full court press on Eve, he seems, right, I mean, Satan goes after Eve, he seemed to recognize her relative weakness. He does not go after the man Adam. He goes, he's, he's a good tactician, right? After Satan puts that full court press on Eve, we read this about the turmoil of Eve. When the woman saw that it that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. So you see there this this intensity of desire that she had for these things. Now a few comments on that text. We have a tendency to think that Adam observed Eve doing battle with Satan. But nothing in this text requires that reading. Right? When it says she gave also to her husband with her, it could very well mean that he was in solidarity with her. Right, but not physically present with her. So, so Adam may not have been there to observe her battle um, with, with the serpent. And it seems the serpent knew enough about Adam and Eve to make sure that happened, that Adam would not be present. This interpretation is confirmed later when God rebukes Adam not for being there and being silent, but what does God rebuke? Adam for. He rebukes him for listening to the voice of his wife. Right? Not for being there and being silent and not taking on and not having rebuked the serpent and doing that. That's not what he's rebuked for. Verse 17 says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground and the curses fall out from there. So Adam's sin is not called out by God for being present and silent, or as many popular writers put it, standing on the sidelines and abdicating his authority. Adam's sin, as God tells us, was being convinced by his wife to eat from the tree. All of this to say that I believe what is featured in this passage in Genesis 3, 1 through 6 is the spiritual, moral vulnerability of the woman, not the abdication of the man. The vulnerability of the woman, not the abdication of the man. We let the abdication part distract us from what is main to the text, which is the weakness of the woman and the serpents taking her as a tactical advantage. Right? But so often we, we read 1 through 6 and then we get down to where it speaks of Adam being, Adam being with her and, and, and eating of the tree and we're like, ah, oh, ha, 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 ha. And we lose all the lesson of what it's saying about the woman previously. 
All of that is a long way to say the weakness of the woman goes beyond the physical to a susceptibility to deception or to temptation for which the man's strength and authority should serve as a protection and a blessing. Okay, so what does that mean for men? What does that mean for us men? How are you to honor your wife in regard to her susceptibility? Well, first of all, you may not despise her for this weakness. You may not despise her. Right, that's the first thing. We as Christians are to give greater honor to those things that are weak. We give greater honor. That your wife is susceptible to giving in to black and white thinking, that your wife is susceptible to depression, that your wife is susceptible to fear, that your wife is susceptible to emotional adultery, that your wife is susceptible to vicarious living through fantasy novels and other other such temptations is reason for you to be a good leader, to be a gracious leader, to be strength when she's assaulted by her weakness. Your temptation will be to despise her vulnerability, to despise that she needs you to talk to her because she's afraid of the future. Right? Your temptation will be to assume she is a man and can blithely bear the weight of conflict with family members, for example. And when you despise her for that weakness, you will disregard this passage commend, you know, commending you to honor her. So, so fundamentally, we as Christians honor those things and those who are weak. This vulnerability in woman, both the physical and the spiritual, dear brothers, is something that you have to come to terms with. What you are being told by feminist egalitarians is how dare you believe there are any differences between the sexes and how dare you believe there is an ontological weakness to women. And what has been the result? Right? We put women on the front lines of battles for our country. We put women in submarines. We put the weak right where the strong are called to use their strength to protect the weak, and we say to them, be a man. That is disparaging to women. That is disparaging to femininity. That is to dishonor the weak. Right? That is to dishonor God who made the woman the weaker vessel. And husbands, the moment you put your wife on the front lines of your little household battles, you've done the same thing. You have disparaged your wife's weakness instead of honoring it. I think there's, there's much growth for us, right, men, in this church, in this area. We have to trust God. Men, you... You have to stop thinking that it's bad to think of your wife as weak. It's biblical. We've got to get back to that liturgy of opening up doors for women, right? Use your strength to honor your wife. Do not make the mistake of our culture, which is on the one hand absolutely delusional about the relative physical weakness of the woman, Right? On the other hand, do not make the mistake of thinking of your wife as less susceptible to temptation and place on her the burden of leading your household with that weakness. 
She has not been called to that kind of authority, and she does not have the structural rigidity to bear up under the weight of that load. Perhaps you don't know who he is, but have you, have you heard of Gilbert Bilizekian? Gilbert Bilizekian, he was one of the founders of Christians for Biblical Equality, which is one of the feminist Christian organizations that kicked up in the late 70s and early 80s. Sort of the, the progressive analog to the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, C, CBMW. He spent his career as a Wheaton College professor, professor arguing for the strength and absolute equality of women. Well, it's recently come to light that he has sexually abused numerous women. And so that, dear brothers and sisters, is what happens when men refuse to treat women like the weaker vessel. That is what happens when men refuse to live with women in an understanding way, right? This is no coincidence that this man's theology would lead him to this kind of abuse. If women are not the weaker vessel, then he's going to force himself on them as, as he wished that they would force themselves on him. Two equals in an equal match. It's very sad. When we break down God's fences, thinking them somehow evil, we sow to the wind and we reap the whirlwind. Now, it may, may very well be that you will go from this sermon, husbands, and be convicted that, that you have placed uh, both physical and spiritual weight on your wife that is improper for her to bear as the weaker vessel. Your wife may be physically and spiritually exhausted because you've been making her play the man. If so, begin making incremental changes to put weight back on your own shoulders. Right? Make sure she gets good sleep. That's a good place to start. Make sure your wife gets good sleep. Right? Make sure she is not the primary discipline, disciplinarian of the household. Right? Make, make sure your strength is what she relies on when she feels tempted, right? Make sure you honor her as the weaker vessel since she is a woman. That's what this passage is commending, and it's good. It, it sounds so countercultural. It makes us nervous, but it's so good in its application. It leads to such good things. Now, there's another reason wh- here why husbands are to honor their wives. This time, it does not have to do with her weakness, but it has to do with her strength. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Fellow heir of the grace of life. Calvin helpfully says in his commentary, he says, Peter employs a twofold argument in order to persuade husbands to treat their wives honorably and kindly. The first is derived from the weakness of the sex, the other from the honor with which God favors them. These things seem indeed to be in a manner contrary that honor ought to be given to wives because they are weak and because they excel. But these things well agree together. Listen how he ends. These things well agree together where love exists. Husbands are to show honor to their wives because they are co-heirs of the grace of life. Your wives are God's adopted children and as such they are to be honored. 
You cannot despise women because of their weakness, and you cannot derive from that weakness that that they are somehow not worthy of God's grace. To come to that view would be abhorrent. Right? In Christ, in regard to the justification and salvation we have as a gift from God, in regard to our inheritance as believers, there is neither male nor female. Right? As Paul puts it in Galatians 3. Husbands and wives are equals when it comes to the gift of the grace of life. Knowing that that is true, this view leads to honoring wives and women. We do not need the kind of patriarchy that Mormonism represents, which, as I understand it, ties the woman's salvation to her marriage to a man. They say that no woman gets into the celestial kingdom without the husband receiving her there. Uh, This has no support, obviously, from Scripture. And though we see that God's economy and marriage in this life has blessed femininity with an honorable weakness, this reality in no way makes her salvation dependent upon her husband. She is saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And not only is she saved by grace, she is an heir, right? She is a son of God. She gets the inheritance, the right of primogenitor. She is precious in the sight of God in the exact same way as you, as her husband, is precious in his sight as an adopted son. And so, at the end of the day, it's good to be a woman. It's good to be a woman. What happens to the man who does not live with his wife in an understanding way, knowing that she is the weaker vessel? What happens to the man who will not honor his wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life? Well, our text says his prayers will be hindered. His prayers will be hindered. Now, that doesn't seem to be a big deal if you're a man who seldom prays, right? My prayers are going to be hindered. I don't pray. I mean, what's the big deal? Um, you can't subtract anything from nothing. Well, that is shameful if it's true of us. Right? If we don't pray, do we have any faith at all? Spurgeon said, I know of no better thermometer to your spiritual temperature than this, the measure of the intensity of your prayer. Where prayer is absent, faith is absent. So if this verse doesn't bother you, it's because your faith is weak and you've left behind prayer. But if you have a sense of the amazing grace of prayer, this threat will shake you to your core. That God would not hear your prayers. That God would not listen to you pray. Again, let me me throw some Spurgeon on you. Splatter it all over you. Prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of omnipotence. I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Prayer plums the or plumes, prayer plumes the wings of God's young eaglets so that they may learn to mount above the clouds. Prayer brings inner strength to God's warriors and sends them forth to spiritual battle with their muscles firm and their armor in place. 
He says, as well could we expect a plant to grow without air and water as expect your heart to grow without prayer and faith. And finally, he says, to pray is to enter the treasure house of God and to gather riches out of an inexhaustible storehouse. If you are at odds with your wife, if you refuse to live with her in an understanding way, brothers, your prayers will either be infrequent or they will be without adequate fervency. The cosmic weight of mistreating the one closest to you the one who birthed your children and died to self to do so, the one who has submitted herself to you and to your leadership, the one who is a fellow heir of of eternal life, that cosmic weight of mistreating her will draw you away from your fellowship with God. Think Think about being cut off from the ear of the Almighty. Does that frighten you as it ought? Right? If you fail to love your wife, as Peter has put it in this passage, understanding she is weaker and honoring her as a saint, you will find that God refuses to listen to your prayers. And when you need His help, His ears will be stopped because He sees your lack of love for your dear helpmate. He will stop His ears. So, dear brothers, today's the day, right? Today's the day. Take one step today to relieve the weight that's on your wife's shoulders. Take one step today to insulate your wife from the sins which so easily entangle her. Right? Do this work today and take further steps tomorrow so that your fellowship with God Himself is not hindered and that your prayers can ascend to Him And he delights to receive them.